sharing huge space. Look how fast he's going. Polar opposite of the conditions he won in Lords. Rain soaked Lords. They're getting the last step down. The crowd is roaring. He is going to do it. He's going to smash the time. Downhill racer and our expert here today, Andrew Needling. Welcome listeners to Moving the Needle podcast. And I am your host, Andrew Needling. After racing professionally on the world stage for many years, I set out in the show to pick apart the minds of top athletes and industry leaders so I can pass that knowledge on to you. The show will include things like their early beginnings, tactics to succeed, bouncing back from adversity, and some candid untold stories. Let's get right into it. Enough about me. Our guest in episode one needs no real introduction. He has multiple World Cup podiums, a movie on Netflix, and known for that crazy canyon backflip at Rampage. He is a good friend of mine, none other than Brendan Faircloth. Welcome, Brendan. Thanks for coming on. I'm super excited to have a nice candid chat with you. Yeah, dude, it's been a while. I'm stoked that you're uh, you're getting on this podcast game. I think you're gonna be you're gonna be good for it. You're gonna be good for it. Well, I appreciate that. So um, you're gonna be my first guest, my pilot episode, episode one. I'm just gonna see where it goes. But I've had this idea for a long time to get my friends and stars of the sport on and see what we can kind of destruct from your brains and your tactics and see what the viewer and listener at home can learn because I think there's a lot that the the viewer doesn't know about someone like you and and the rest of the, the stars out there. Andrew, look, day-to-day life, you talk enough shit, so why not record it, talk to uh, talk to some interesting, cool people, and then let everyone else uh, hear it as well. I think it's a great idea. <laughs> <laughs> well, there we go. There we go. So talk to me, uh, where are you at now? What's been going on? Obviously, it's an interesting time for everyone in the world. So just give me a quick synopsis of where you are now and what you've been up to. Oh, Jesus. Um, it's like you said, it's a, it's a weird time. And it's, and it's been, you know what, we, we had lock, we're, we're on lockdown now for, this is our fourth week. And um, at the beginning, or when all this is kicking off, we are actually um uh in loza uh preparing for fox testing for the first world cup and i was sort of kind of blase about it all really you know um as we all are and and then suddenly the fox guys neat there was talk about their their flights back to america not being able to to fly back and blah 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 and all this crazy stuff going on and uh so i made the sort of executive decision at that time to fly back early and we um, we flew back, and then obviously the day we flew back, Portuguese borders got closed, and blah blah blah. But what I was saying is, at the beginning, um, the UK gave us three weeks lockdown, and for me that was by giving an end date to something by saying, "Look, guys, you're locked in for three weeks." That made it easy for me. That made it like right. I was ticking off days. I was getting jobs done. I was training. I was getting stuff done in the garden. Blah blah. Having an end date made it very easy for me. I was, I was, which is what I've sort of learned from myself now. Um, but then that grew into, oh, you're going to have another three weeks of lockdown. And then that grew into, oh, it might be the beginning of June, might be the middle of May, blah, 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 blah. And I've realized and I've learned about myself that by, by having no end date, by having no end goal, by having no um, finish time, it's, I'm struggling. I'm struggling because... I could just I could just hammer stuff out and, and I knew that 
in three weeks' time we were going to be out of it. But um, at the minute, I'm not I'm not on a downer, and obviously everyone's in exactly the same position. But the first three weeks were easy, <laughs> and now it's struggled down a little bit. I don't know about you, but if you feel the same, that's 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 what I'm feeling. Well, uh, our lockdown was also extended, and it took me a day or two to, you know, reevaluate my expectations of what it was going to be like. But I think that's testament to being an athlete. You always have a time in a the year. There's either the off season, the preseason training, maybe the last few weeks of testing. You've always got a goal for that first World Cup being in March, April, May, whenever it is. So, talk to me the mindset shift when you're at Portugal. How was preseason for you? Because that's quite ironic that you're on the last trip before the World Cup season's meant to start and now you're in a holding pattern so how did it look before before the stop to the World Cup season? Well um, I've got to be brutally honest then and uh, I was uh, deeply unprepared for the first World Cup <laughs> I know you might not uh, think that but at the beginning of my season this year uh, was this absolutely crazy filming filming this dog's life series um organizing this dog's life series obviously training hard i've got i'm really lucky to to live close to ollie wilkins and bernard kerr so getting in the gym was no problem we you know we're, we're in three in there three or four times a week pretty structured actually we um we we get on it we we work hard we train hard um, but then I was traveling so much as well at the beginning of the season. I, I mean, I did 23 or 24 flights before the before like lockdown started, you know. So I was um, filming for Dog's Life. I was going to Dark Fest. I was digging different locations for stuff. I was scouting stuff. And, and when it came around to fox testing, um, beginning uh, the, the week before the World Cup, I'd only actually done one day of riding my downhill bike on, you know, with time runs. Like I say, like I say, I say, like what I call testing because riding with Vinny T in Chatel uh, for that section was just like filming. You know, you, you ride twenty meters and you ride back up, then you walk back up, and then I did the same with Amory in South Africa. Um, filming and that and that is on your downhill bike but it's not like banging out three minute runs as you know it's very different so I turned up to to Loza for fox testing deeply deeply unprepared and I was just sort of sort of relying on my on the last 10 10 11 years of of riding my bike riding my downhill bike to hope hope I was going to get through it so um I hate to say it but when, when the first world cup was was postponed secretly i was like shit yes this is a blessing in disguise to me because obviously i i'm i'm weaning out of weaning out of out of racing a little bit but that's that's 100 percent what wakes me up in the morning that's where my passion is that's why i wake up and go to the gym that's why i don't hit the bottle of wine every night that's why you know i'm not down the pub every other night with the boys it, it, it's it drives me you know i want to like last year when i when i when i got that little sniff of uh up the sharp end again with a sixth and a few other races i was i was on it um that's just the motivation just boost straight up as you know like i'm sure like you know when you were racing that you just need one little one little sniff of um of uh i don't think success is the word but i think you need one little sniff of uh 
of 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 being up there at the sharp end again, and you're so motivated again. So um, so yeah, I, I was I was gutted not to be as prepared as I wanted to be. So when it got cancelled, I was I was actually pretty excited. I was like, yes, this gives me a little bit more time to to get my to get my shit in a pile ready for the first race. But obviously now I'm, I'm gutted uh, how it's all how it's all turned out. But yeah, what can we do? Well, we will come back to that. We'll come back to dog's life. Uh, that passion you speak about, I know, I know that it's deep inside you uh, to to race, and sometimes gets you in trouble with how focused you can be. But we'll come back to that. But speaking of Portugal, we obviously saw a little bit of stuff on your Instagram. We know how good you are on that, and everyone loves seeing you ride. But it seems like one of the tracks you decided to post about created a bit of beef between Loic, and he actually did bring it up. So I think it's safe and fair that you you give your side of the story. Once you'd heard maybe the racing was going to be postponed, it seems like you took uh, an opportunity there to ride the track. No, yeah, I was uh, I was openly very naughty. I uh, the the we were on Fox testing. We were flying. We were supposed to test Friday, Saturday. Um, obviously, the World Cup was cancelled, so um, they openly the the event lows have said they were going to open the track again because that back then the World Cup was supposed to, not supposed to be till October, which I don't know whether that's still the case or whatever. But we weren't riding the track, and I thought it's a day early. Which I'm sorry, Louis. Pardon me. A day early. We. We're, you're allowed to ride on Saturday, but we're flying out Friday afternoon. So um, yeah, we uh, we rode the track. I mean, it was all open and ready to go, but uh, yeah, it was nine hours, ten hours too early. But um, yeah, I, I, which I when uh, when Lewick uh, got angry at me, I was I was actually pretty stoked, you know, because uh, it meant that it meant that he thought I was a competitor. <laughs> <laughs> it, it meant that he he was he was uh, worried that I was going to have come in with some heat and give him some uh, give him some stick up at the pointy end. No, no, you know, um, Lyric ultimate competitor. You know, whether it's me or or Amri or anyone, I think he you know he wants to stick by the rules, and I really uh, I really appreciate that. And I think he, what what he um, what he's doing there is uh, is right. You know, I think the French get some bad stick for. For cheating and riding tracks before and stuff and i know he's uh he's not like that so uh, yeah he gave some stick on instagram and and yeah it was funny he, I, at first i thought he was joking so i was like dude like i was thinking dude no one's everyone's allowed to ride this literally tomorrow uh until october and i rode it a day early but um you know rules are rules and uh he's he's calling me out so yeah good for him well, it gives us at home something to laugh at, and and uh, it was fun following along till it got taken down. But I mean, I respect to to him. He is a kind of a quite an outspoken rider for being at the top end of the field. Um, you know, he has his principles, so that's good. But uh, like you said, it was maybe nine hours early. But now it's looking quite funny. You know, maybe you're one of the most prepared for that race if it ever comes back, going from the least prepared to the most prepared. So it's funny how the world works. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You know, um, yeah. We, at, at first, when when uh, when Luke put that on Instagram, I was like, "Is this a joke?" I thought I thought he was honestly joking, and then quite clearly saw that he wasn't joking. So um, 
I, I gave him some stick back and so I knew I was in the wrong but I was like come on dude like the line is that like the, it's a grey line like this track is open now for the next nine months for anyone to ride and I rode it one day early but um you know I, I see where he's coming from and uh I we, we had a word with him we had a word together privately and and iron things out but um <laughs> yeah. I like it that we were it was it was gonna it could have got out of control on there I think but you know we're both uh, we're both not stupid and, and don't want to don't want to take it too far in there. So I think we're uh, we're going to shake hands and, uh, and buy each other a beer. Well, I mean that brings me to one of the topics I did want to discuss. You excelled at such an early age, and there was just this raw track speed. So seeing you on Instagram for ten seconds of a track, I'm sure even the likes of Luke Bruni get intimidated. So. Talk to me about this raw track speed. Where did it come from? Your upbringing in the in the in racing in England. Yeah, um, that's that's a funny one. Like you know, I, I would I would say like yeah, I uh, excel in practice. You could say I'm the practice champion. What's it called? The uh, the uh, win practice guy. Sometimes, especially back in the day, and I distinctly remember. Um, when I was on a team with Sam Hill, like the Mad Cats Iron Horse, or, or you know, Mad Cat Specialized team with Sam. Um, honestly, like in practice, I felt faster than Sam. I was just on his tail. I was like ripping down. We were having so much fun together. It was it was the good good days of racing for me. It really was cool. Um, and it come to the race run, and Sam would put five seconds into me every single time, and I'd be like, shit, like I was. I was on your tail, dude, the whole practice. Like, we were playing around, we were having fun. Vice versa, you know, we'd follow each other and I'd follow him and he'd follow me and we were similar speeds. And then they'd just put five seconds into me in the, in the, in the final, which is, you know, every single time. Incredible. I think I think still Sam is the the pinnacle of downhill racing, still you know, the most influential guy that's, that we've had in the sport so far. But... um yeah, you know, it's it's. I, I always find found it easy to to learn a track, easy to get into a track, easy to get up to speed way too early, and then I'd find I'd probably uh, like flatten out my speed would flatten out, and it'd come to finals, and I'd I'd see like these, you know, we'd do qualifying, that has got or like we'd do time runs, and I'd be like, yeah, I'm pretty happy with my time run. I'd see someone's qualifying time, and it's like. 10 seconds faster than our time runs but obviously you do you do naturally when it's a race you do pick up the pace but I think I think yeah I did uh I did um peak or still do peak a little early at races which is something I'm still working on to this day but um but yeah definitely got to stop being the uh I mean like, like I said before I, get, I feel like I get up to speed early I just I'm having too much fun and I'm just flying down I'm also guilty of doing too many runs and making myself tired. But, yeah, you know, I guess I'm still a kid. Well, that is one of my next topics. Speaking of peaking early, I mean, you excelled at an early age with two World Cup podiums before some people knew your name. Obviously, you're from England, people knew you were. But, I mean, talk to me about that. Achieving those podiums as a junior in the elite yeah. field. I mean, speaking of peaking early. Yeah, I am... Um... You can check some stats, Andrew, but I think I'm the youngest uh, guy to get on a World Cup podium. 
Well, I believe uh, that in, because I've got it in Pila. In Pila is third, and then you also had one in Schladme. Yeah, yeah. In yeah, fifth. Yeah. So, yeah. <laughs> I mean, that was a flying cup. That was, that was pretty cool. Um, geez, that one in Pila was, uh, was, was funny. That was a great, great track. I wish we'd go back to those old school tracks, but, uh, yeah, I'd come. I'd come off of. Uh, I'd come off three weeks in um, in front in in Morzine, Actually, we'd uh, we'd stay in my van, five of us in Morzine, and we'd just rally those tracks every single day. And I remember a week a week before um, that race, I had a big crash in Morzine on one of the tracks, and I'd uh, I'd hurt my thumb. I twisted my thumb back. I don't know if any, if any of you've ever seen how badly my thumb is. Is dislocated, but um, I, I dislocated my my right thumb. So I had a week off before that race, resting, I guess you could call it nowadays. Um, and I came in and I was heavily strapped up with my thumb, like every run. It was I was on heavy painkillers just to get through this. And yeah, it was it was obviously it was my third ever World Cup. Um, I was coming in like not really knowing what what the deal is, not really knowing how it all works. This full of beans, full of excitement. Crashed in my seeding run, uh, qualifying run back then actually. Fell down this bank, like right down this bank, um, and I forgot that you had to qualify. So I was just ambling up this hill. Got back on my bike at the top and then pinned it down to the bottom, oblivious I didn't even needed to qualify. Luckily, I qualified like 76th or 73rd or something. So I just got in. And then, uh, and then, yeah, after that, I knew that I, well, I knew that I had mad speed if I'd managed to do that. I, I honestly probably lost 35 seconds down that bank. <laughs> so uh, I knew if I could just stay on the thing and get to the bottom, I'd have had, I'd had a pretty good chance. So <clears throat> yeah, I, um, had a good run, I guess, and got down. I was in the hot seat for probably an hour and a half until um, until shit. Who beat me? Greg and Sam, I think. Was it Greg and Sam? A pretty good run. Yeah. You're talking about third at a World Cup as a junior. <laughs> I mean, yeah. let's just pause there for a second. There's not many guys that can say they've done that. So that's an incredible achievement, and it's sounding more and more like you had not a lot of expectations. You had a lot of bike time going in then something you don't know how to do is rest. So you were forced to rest. So maybe you were yeah. even more excited to ride. And just like not a lot of expectations, I guess, being a junior and not knowing what's going on. So just kind of riding your bike and getting on with it just sounds like what you would do in that race. Oh, for sure. You know, like ignorance is bliss. And uh, I had no expectation. I was not a name. I was... I was uh, I mean, at that point, Steve Pete had given me some kit and a bike um and he he just said you know he he steve saw me at a, a race a couple of years before at some national races and he was like yeah i want to help you out with some royal kit and an orange bike and some and some and some kit like that and, I, and obviously i was just like you know it's a steve p approaching me giving me a bike and some kit this is the best thing ever so uh so yeah, we went on to went on this to, and you know when you're that age, you, you literally you're just riding your bike, and I cannot even imagine what a state my bike would have been in back then. But mate, I think maybe Andy Kiffin, Steve's mechanic at the time, would have been helping me out uh, with some bike mechanics and stuff. And 
So, yeah, I um, I pinned it down. Uh, had a good one, and like that, and it's so funny. Like that race, Steve had some podium kit. Obviously, Steve was a you know, debatably maybe the peak of his career. You now I think like he was, you know, just won the World Cup over the year before, whatever. Blah blah blah. He had some special kit made for the podium, so he, he said. Oh, Bren, you can uh, you can you can wear my kit on the podium. So I'm wearing these massive baggy shorts that fit Steve that I'm wearing. It's like camo top. I never wear glasses. Steve's giving me some like special Smith glasses to wear. I've got the hat on. I'm just looking like the biggest idiot. Massive clothes on, but just chuffed to nuts, dude. I'm strolling up to the podium, just like standing behind the podium with all the big dogs there. And I was just like, whoa, this is the most insane thing I've ever done. So out of my depth. But um, that was, uh, shit, that was a cool feeling. And to back it up the following year with a uh, with another podium, or was it that same? I can't remember. With another podium at Schladming was just, yeah, geez, crazy. But I mean... Talk me through the feelings of having someone like Steve Pete come to you to offer you bikes help. I mean, I remember back in the day um, having a phone call, or my dad did with Greg, and I got some help from Global. And like to this day, it's just one of the most exciting days I could have ever had. And then you go and repay him with a third and yeah. have to use his podium kit. I mean, that's just such a good story. <laughs> yeah, I don't know if it repaid him, though. I think he's pissed off me for beating him. I don't know. No, he wasn't really. No, I was joking. He wasn't. I know, but <laughs> I was, think... He was genuinely stoked. I think Petey's the type of guy, that's why he's the people's champ. He actually would be more stoked for you and not worry that he didn't get a podium. Oh, 100%. 100%. You know... Um, you know, at the time, it was just like all a bit overwhelming. And yet, dude, he was yeah, he was so so happy for 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 me and what was going on. And yeah, um, oh yeah, hundred percent. He's he's the absolute man. But to go back to the relationship with Steve is a funny one because as I grew up as a kid, I didn't idolise um, those downhill riders. I had no expectation to be a downhill rider actually. I was, uh, I grew up as a scruffy dirt jump kid. Um, believe it or not, like Ollie Wilkins was, he, Ollie Wilkins is a couple of years older than me. So at that age, he's a lot older. So I was like looking up to Ollie and all these other, like Jimmy and all these other dirt jump kids. And I was like, shit, I want to be as good as them when I'm older, you know? Um, and then we just started hanging out with those guys and we started riding at the dirt jumps. But then me and Ollie would like hit turns all the time. And then me and Ollie started racing downhill together, uh, like locally. So honestly, I had no, I had no downhill idols. Uh, obviously as I started to ride a little bit more, I, uh, I knew Steve Pete was, I knew who these other people were. And then when Steve approached me, I was obviously like, shit, he's like world champion. He's like, World Cup overall champions, an absolute legend. But I never used to idolise him early days. I mean, I idolise him now way, 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 way more. Like, the guy is an absolute legend. But back then, I was more tied up in in getting home from school, getting out of my school kit and getting into my, into my jeans and going to digging in the woods, you know. Like, I wasn't actually aspiring to be a downhill rider. It's just it's weird to think, but... um. So when Steve approached me back then, I was like stoked, but I wasn't 
I wasn't like, you know, do you know what I mean? Like, it wasn't like it wasn't it wasn't my idol or anything. So I was, at the time, I was like, yes, we're getting a bike, I'm getting kit. This is sick. And as the years have grown on, he's just grown in for me to be the most amazing idol. And he came to my wedding with his wife and his kids, and it was just it was just amazing. Like he's. It's almost the opposite. He's like grown into being an insane idol now. And I think the way he operates, the way he has helped out this sport, especially in the UK, well, I'd say in the world, it's been absolutely amazing. So, um, yeah, super fortunate about that. And, and it's I'm stoked to call him a good friend now, you know. Yeah, it's a surreal time when someone like that's at your wedding and he's kind of the, well, you were the butt of the joke, but he was used in a skit. And then I think... One of my most proud moments was sitting next to him at your wedding. I mean, I'm talking yeah, cool. more more proud than some of some of the racing achievements. But I think you've you've hit something really uh, important there that I think some of the kids are missing, and I want your thoughts on that. I also grew up dirt jumping a lot, um, digging jumps, just being on my bike. Now you've got more access to videos and watching stuff. You can obviously learn. But I'm I'm not seeing these kids. Now in lockdown, I'm seeing a bit of jumps getting built and a lot of riding. But do you think the kids have lost kind of that, that the reason we got good was dirt jumping, riding our bikes, playing, you know, having fun? Like I think that's lost a bit now with all these bike parks and lift access and people aren't really earning it and, and kind of building that skill set. I mean, you're a World Cup podium rider. And you come from a dirt jump background. A lot of the riders back in the day used to dirt jump a lot. Yeah. Yeah, 100%. Um, I mean, I'd probably say, uh, well, certainly four of my World Cup podiums came without me ever riding an XC bike or a road bike. Um, we were hammering dirt jump bikes, you know, hammering pump tracks, digging a lot. Um, you know, I, I don't suggest it nowadays, but you know, we I weren't we weren't actually properly training. But looking back, it was training. Like we used to spend hours on the pump track. You, I'd never do that now. I'd never do that now. It, you, I'd be so tired. So, but yeah, to get back to what you're saying is, I get messages every single day from kids. Oh, I'm really struggling to get noticed. How do you get sponsors? Um, what do you do to what do you do to get sponsored? And and it's like people are worried about getting sponsored before they're worried about having fun on their bike or, or what they're doing. Like I this is a genuine truth. I never even thought about getting sponsored. I was literally I know you can't I know it's different nowadays, but I was literally just riding my bike um every day, five times a day. It's all I could think about. And uh I never even thought about getting sponsored, but now I get messages like, as you probably do, how do I get sponsored? What do I do to, I'm not really struggling to get noticed. It's like, well, why do you even want to get noticed? Are you riding to get noticed or are you riding to ride your bike? But I think in this day and age, like, like you said, there's Instagrams, Facebooks, there's, we're seeing, we're seeing the best parts of every single person's life, which is super cool as long as you do remember it, it's the best part of everyone's life. Yeah, like, like you said, I, I, don't, I, don't know whether the, I don't know whether the fun is lost, uh, but I certainly think that um, times have changed and um, we do document everything. We do, you know, a lot of the time we, well, as you can see, I rode off the roof of my house literally just for Instagram likes. 
you, you, you did, but that's a lesson to guys at home, not on Instagram likes. Um, yeah. You've just mentioned people want to get sponsored. And it's like, are you, is your goal to be sponsored or your goal is to be a pro, pro rider? That, that I think is a byproduct of falling in love with a sport, wanting to improve, and there's sort of no delayed gratification. The reason you can ride off that roof, and you did that all in one go, correct? Dude, that, I'll quickly tell you about that. I was like, I had a bad day. I uh, was a bit over it that day and, and just doing a bit of digging, mucking around. Didn't do any training that day, which I felt guilty about. Um, and and I'd, want to ri- I'd want to ride off that for ages. And Monster said, oh, can we do like a quarant- uh, crush quarantine post sometime? Blah, blah, blah. And I was like, right, I'm riding off the roof. Literally went over to my workshop, got my downhill bike out, wheeled it over, pulled it straight. You know, you know, this is exactly me. Put it straight up onto the top of the roof, and I was on the top of the roof, <laughs> and I was like, "Shit, I wonder when I last rode this bike. Like, is my head, is my like, are my bars done up? Like, is are these bolts done up? Do I have air in the tires? Did I put air in these forks? I've ridden the forks one day in uh, in loads of fox testing, <laughs> and now I'm on the top of this roof, about to ride off it." And when you look down, the tarmac looks like it's facing uphill. <laughs> so I was on there, and I felt like such an idiot. I was like, Hannah, can you film me right off this roof? Make sure it's a slow-mo. I'm going to see if I can hit this monster can. And I was just up there, like, with my head in my hands, going, what the hell has this come to? But, uh, um yeah, what were we talking about? Well, that was, that that's good. I mean, I wanted to get to that, but it's it's even more uh, kind of ammo here to the subject is the reason you can walk to your shed, grab your bike, walk onto the top of the roof is because you've ridden for 20 years, pushing yourself, yeah. learning these things. So you get to the top and you've got the subconscious knowledge like, okay, I pretty much can do this. And if I crash, it's going to be like that. And that doesn't come from getting sponsored or getting Instagram likes. That's a byproduct no. because you've worked so hard and kind of earned your way to the top. And I and I think that part of it's missing. And it's not a lecture to the youngsters, but it's like, let's take a step back and remember why we're riding. And if you do want to get sponsored, you have to earn it. It's a two-way street. So you get given free stuff because you can get results or you are very good on a bike. And that only comes from yeah. riding incessantly. You know, yeah, you yeah. don't get good from looking at Instagram. No, that's for sure. But um, if if people rephrased it, they, I, you know, like you and you, and we get messages all the time. How do I get sponsored? How do I get noticed? If they rephrased that and said, "How do I get better? How do I improve?" Then I'm going to be writing back to them. Then I'm going to be communicating with them. You know what to do, but. As soon as you say, how do I get sponsored? Then I feel like your priorities are in the wrong spot to start with, like we, like we just said. So, um, yeah, I think like you and me, it was how do I improve? How do I get better? How do I get faster? How do I bunny hop higher? How do I do a 360? How do I do this? How do I do that? Which is, which is how you get better, which, you, you have to, which comes before how I get sponsored. You know, you do that. And then you get noticed and then you get sponsored and then you just have to, you know, carve. That's exactly what I've done. I've carved my own my own route. You know, I found out not early days, but I was racing and 
I was getting into my mid twenties and I was, uh, you know, a good downhill racer, but, but not a great one. Um, I hadn't, hadn't won any world cups. I hadn't, I was podiuming now and again, but it would definitely was not consistent <laughs> as I could, as you, you know, like yourself, you know, you've, you've had many world cup podiums, but we weren't consistently top 10. We weren't consistently even sometimes top 20. So that, push me into um different avenues like i was enjoying uh, as as you as well andrew we enjoying jumping these fest series started coming up like i was enjoying filming a lot um i love like I said, again i love jumping my bike that's you know pretty much why i do it is to do left-hand corners and to do big jumps <laughs> um so yeah, like I was not not that my passion had gone for downhill, which is absolutely not true at all. But definitely my focus had like gone into different different avenues. You know, I was like filming a lot more. Like uh, the death grip opportunity came up, and I wanted to film that. So oh, a load of energy went into that. A load of energy went into to racing as well, but it was at that stage it was sort of went both ways and uh i think that i think to be a top 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 you know lewick or amory you can't you can't um have your focus in anywhere more than just one spot you know so yeah i don't know well it seems that you've made peace with that and kind of following your gut and it's it's hard to force yourself to do something if you're not enjoying it i mean there's certain things you don't you will never enjoy it. and you and Loic can't say that he enjoys doing intervals, but he is focused on winning races, and it seems yeah. like you've made more peace that you are focused on pushing yourself in other avenues as well. And I don't think that means you're not willing to work hard because, I mean, I, it's great that you release those behind the scenes things of your dog's life, which I, we we should maybe then talk about now because there's so much hard work goes into that, but you're willing to put up with. 6 a.m. mornings, pushing up a hill, 40 degrees in South Africa, the logistics that go behind these projects, the funding that goes behind these projects, you know, and yeah. the danger, you know, you're pushing yourself and, and, and can get hurt. It's not that, some of it's not as controlled environment. No, 100%. It's like, it is, a comp- it, I mean, World Cup racing I'd say is you know is uh, still for me the pinnacle um, of of everything. But certainly, um, when I decided to do Death Grip, I did a full World Cup season, um, full World Cup season, and I I think I can't remember, but we had, I had some pretty good success in that season as well. But what we were filming for fifteen months, like not every day, obviously, but every day was either I wake up and I sort out emails to for logistics of where we're going to go. I had to go and fly places to uh, scout locations, fly places to dig locations. We, we had to fly back to Madeira four times with the whole crew. We had to, I had to sort out um, funding for everything, um, getting everyone in the same place at the same time. It's super hard. And then, so you're doing all this behind the scenes, I'm also trying to train. I'm also trying to keep my sponsors happy with racing. And then when you get to the location, then I have to ride better than I've ever ridden before. <laughs> and uh, 
and um, it, it was a lot, you know. It was, you know, for example, we were filming with Brandon in Utah, and that was this, the hardest shoot I've ever done, I think, because uh, with me and Ollie had been out there two weeks before previously digging for a week, super hard uh, work digging out there, uh, digging these horrible, massive features, always in the back of my mind, I thought, shit, I've got to go back and actually jump these things now. Um, so we went back, we had a big crew, um, logistics were horrible. We, uh, we got shut down on a few things, which meant we had to start every day at 4am, uh, to get up onto the top of the hill when it was dark and get everything done super early. And I was sometimes on that, sometimes on that shoot, I was waking up, I was walking up the hill, like, at five in the morning, my full race kit, ready to jump off a 70-foot step down. And I was like, shit, maybe this is not what I want to do. Maybe I'm not cut out for this. Maybe I want to go back to World Cup racing. I think I think maybe I should focus on World Cup racing. World Cup racing is well, way easier than this. <laughs> but, um, yeah, you know what I mean? It's just, you just, whatever we do, it's our, it's our, um, nature is we just push stuff to the absolute limit like we just whatever we do and i generally think that about what it's why we're both being successful at racing and riding our bikes is because it's not because we've just fallen into that position it's because we've worked extremely hard we've got dedication we've got get up and go like whether that's filming or whether that's racing or whether that's working in a bank or whether that's being a builder, whether that's being a carpenter, you know, if, if you've got that grit and you've got that weight, you've got, you wake up at 6am to go do stuff every single day, I think that's what pushes you, you know? And I found, I really did find that with with filming as well. Like, filming is, filming sucks, as you know. Like, when it's 40 degree heat, when we film with you in South Africa, which you, you obviously you take the brunt of all the dust and everything, Film is not fun a lot of the time. Like you have to push back up. They're huge, long days. You, you know, it's it's or whether you're doing intervals and going to World Cups. You know, it's like both both have their ups and their downs. You know, and I think as long as you put 100 percent into it, then it's gonna it's gonna pay off down the line. Yeah, I couldn't agree more. Um, it's it's the the product of what you get is amazing, and the lifestyle that you've earned, people look at. That's that like looking at the an Instagram picture, but the work to get it there, it sucks. Like filming yeah. is literally horrible. Whether, like yeah. you said, it's 40 degrees or you are a, a nutter and you end up doing something and then the other rider feels pressured to do it and you crash, like th that's just crap. There's no sugarcoating. It's the, the positive is cool that <laughs> after the filming, you get to ride your bike more and you go to a, a cool location, you race. But I think the work that goes in sucks and, and that is for all sorts of works of life. I think if you don't kind of earn it, it really doesn't doesn't feel good anyway. So... I yeah, think, 100%. I think, yeah, I think that's of, what it comes down to. Yeah. It. yeah, and I think a lot of people don't see that. They think you slack with your training, but I think you're just less structured. So I, I appreciate that you're giving us a look into what it takes to filming and your mindset. And speaking of mindset, uh, you've been injured. It's derailed some of your racing, which maybe pushed you into this avenue of free riding. Um, but talk to me about the motivation and then how you build confidence after the injury to go and try things that could easily get you hurt or more hurt yeah actually i, I didn't think like that. That's, that you're right that you 
you know more about me than I do. That is probably the start of the the uh, yeah me going off in different avenues is when I snapped my ACL back in 2012. Um, the year before that, I was uh, sixth in the overall. Um, the year before that, I was eighth in the overall. Blah blah blah. We're at the point here, and I snapped my ACL. Had a really shitty off season. Um, blah blah blah. But yeah, yeah. To get back to your question, um, is I think stupidity and ignorance, Andrew. Is you know you do. We're we're all we've all been injured. We all get back to it. But then, as soon as you get back on that bike and that adrenaline starts flowing again, there's there's a certain amount of forgetting forgetting everything else and just getting on with the job in hand. But um, definitely a snap day. So kicked me back for a good couple of years. I, I mean, I snapped it twice. I snapped it in my qualifying run in Peter Maritzburg back in 2011 or 12, I think. 11, I heard, yeah. Yeah, 11, yeah, yeah. And then I had reconstructive surgery on it. Uh, with, I took my hamstring out and, and did, all the, did all the works, blah, blah, blah. And then almost a year to the day after my surgery, I was, I was at Rampage. And uh, I hopped off the first uh, little drop-off, which is honestly about 10 foot tall not even that big really and I landed a soft spot my foot came off the pedal twisted my knee and I snapped it again um and actually now I have no I have no ACL in that knee like after that they spoke to my surgeon my physio and we came to the conclusion that just keep that leg really strong um, obviously for longer longer down the line I'm going to need a replacement but for now just keep it strong and keep it keep yourself uh, fit and I, I actually haven't had an ACL in that in that since then and I don't feel any difference in strength you know in the gym or on the bike or anything um, I go through six months at a time without even noticing that I haven't got an ACL in there so uh, but yeah it definitely was a it definitely was a kick a kick in the ass back then that's that's for sure that was a, a real bummer to the uh, to the World Cup podium campaign I mean these these injuries. Uh, I think on in some way you you come back stronger. I mean I think it's a cl- cliche thing, but uh, maybe to help the viewers at home, you've had dark months. You've had dark times through your racing career, not achieving what you expect from yourself, what your talent could deliver. But it seems like you just kept going, and you build up to doing these crazy feats, be it filming or now you know things clicking at a at a World Cup. So. I mean, that's just resilience. And I think people sometimes give up a little bit early when they're just going through a dip. And if they just kept pushing on, you know, they could achieve what they, what they set out to. Yeah, I mean, 100%. It's like, uh, you know, some sometimes what, what would get you through it would be like, well, you know, like the, the, the worst feeling in the entire world is of what you think you've had a good run at World Cup, you get down and you're off the pace. You know that. Like, you get down and you put all your effort in, you've, you felt pretty good and you, like, look up at the time and you're back, you're out the back and you're like, shit, dude, like, that is just... I wanted to give up right then many times, many times. Um, and I just think, oh, shit, like, 
be way better just like going to work with my brother or like working in an office or or like just working for someone nine to five you don't have all that disappointment you don't have that pressure you don't have that all the hard work that goes into what felt like nothing at the end I felt that so many times and, and also at races I just think oh is, is all this pressure and you, you got so many sponsors to keep happy and stuff the whole time you've got train the whole time at home just for that just for that three minute run is it worth it and uh and all you've got to do is have one race that you felt good and that you're up there at the pointy end for you to just get that motivation back for like a whole year you know but but to go back to what you said like yeah for me it was it was a little bit better because i had a few like I said, other avenues to go. So if my racing was going bad, I'd feel like I put more effort into my filming or whatever. And if the filming wasn't going so well, I'd be like, oh yeah, well, we'll just train harder and do and do better at the World Cups. You know, there was always like, not an excuse, but it was always like, I'd, 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 I could step back onto the other thing, if you know what I mean. Yeah, I, th- I think it takes the pressure off uh, only focusing on one thing. That's like um, that denim destroyer. I mean, he had a he had a full time job, and then he's able to come to a race and mix it up and be in the top fifteen, top twenty, top ten, whatever it may be. And then he goes back to a job, you know. But the minute you switch to a full time racing career, then you've got one focus, and all these expectations rise. So. It's about managing those expectations, it seems, and you're able to offset that knowing that you've got movies to fall back on. But what I want to dig into, everyone sees all the highs and and that's all what the the world sees these days. But, I mean, talk some of those lows. I mean, we've been with each other and, and, and you can feel it when you see someone after a race. You can feel the agony and pain and the low he's feeling after not performing or getting a flat tire when you're on a fast one or crashing within sight of the finish. Like the highs and lows of 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 sport and this career, I mean, it's just the craziest thing ever. Yeah, I mean, well, we've both definitely had our uh, our low points. Yeah, just I think people, too many people, just focus on just the positives. But if we can kind of work through. Like the low, the low points here. I mean, I've seen it, and then to see you the next day, you'd like you kind of. It seems like you have your moment, and the next day, it's it's like okay, you know, we're getting on with it. We're going for a ride, or we're going for a beer. And you seem to be able to quickly forget. Maybe on the outside, that's what I want to talk about. Sorry. Yeah. Let me be clear with that. You seem to put it behind you and get on with the present quicker than most. Yeah. Um. I think it just I think it just goes back to what we were saying early on and like why you started like like it goes back to to I didn't I didn't start out to be the number one best rider in the world like I started out to just keep improving I was enjoying riding my bike World Cups came along and it, it became a huge passion and the, obviously a huge goal. But I, I've always been, I've always been quite uh, real with myself and and quite thinking that you know, in the grand scheme of things, me riding down a hill <laughs> um, and having a good run, and whether I was in, whether I was in in first or twentieth. A, a month later doesn't really matter like where I was I, I often think that 
say I get a World Cup podium, even now, huge achievement for myself. Like all the sponsors are so stoked. Like I'm buzzing. Like I'd be over the moon. Like all the work I put in, I'd be absolutely thrilled and like felt like a real, real, real sense of achievement. The next week would be another World Cup. I might get 15th. If you ask someone where Brendan got at the last, the following the last World Cup, no one would know would know who got third at the last World Cup, who got fourth at the last World Cup. What I'm trying to say is that racing is kind of week to week. Like, obviously not if you win a World Cup over, obviously not if you win a race without a chain or you win a race without any brakes or without any front wheel or whatever people do. But that's that's an achievement that that has a huge long shelf life. Winning World Cup overall shelf life, winning World Champs, you know. But I'm afraid it, you get eighth or we get fourth. That's a huge achievement for us, but it's, it has got no shelf life. It's got no shelf life. Like um, if we do, you know, like if we do, if you do a cool edit if you do a cool film that has a shelf a lot longer shelf life people can look back at that and go shit I want to go watch Andrew like hit that section again or do those dirt jump section on that video that's how I've always thought like videos and edits and films have a long shelf life whereas if I get a World Cup podium that's last till the next weekend you know which uh which is don't know whether there's a good or bad way to think of it but um that's how I sort of got over some deep failures you know that's how I got over some low points like I'd have a good run and be 25th at a World Cup and I'm like shit that is that is not what I get paid to do I've let so many people down <laughs> that's not why I train that's not you know that's not why I'm here but then you move on to the next World Cup and then it all starts again you got you started with practice and then you you get yourself in the vital raw or whatever, and then you're like, "Yeah, okay, that's cool. Yeah, we'll start again." Do you know what I mean? Like, it's everything these days has got such a short shelf life that it's I don't know. It was for me, it was quite easy to to move on from from bad stuff because you just you know, in this day and age, we look at Instagram and we look at ten second videos, and it's where we move straight on. Don't go back to it. You know, it's like. It's, yeah. it's weird. It's crazy, crazy where we're living in at the minute. It is a crazy time. But I think I think you've given a nugget there, a lesson to the listener at home. And, I mean, if you look back, if you got that win that you were so disappointed when you got a flat tyre. But in, in 20 years, it's not really going to matter. So, yes, it's tough. No, dude, in a year. In a year, yeah. Matter. So you're saying even shorter. But even if you play the game of, like, is this going to matter in a year, five years, ten, I mean, that can maybe help you deal with it, you reflect on why it went bad, and then, you know, okay, in a year, am I really going to remember this day that, you know, is it is it going to matter? And no, it's probably yes. not, so it'll help you just move on to your next goal. So I think that's great advice there. Yeah, but um, going going back on what I've just said, I think, I, I do think as a younger athlete, um, you're not well, you're not well, you're not as well um, known and uh, recognised and stuff. I think, early early results really do matter in your career actually because you know you're building yourself a good platform and you're building yourself some respect and and stuff but um you know so what i said is true but not 100 percent. you can't just like disregard all good results of everyone but um 
certainly, certainly at the time, it feels a lot more important than it maybe actually might be, if you know what I mean. No, I mean, it matters for the guy. Like, we want him to set goals and achieve them, and it matters for his sponsors. But I think we're trying to help that when it doesn't go that well, so that he can reset and try get one at the next one. Yeah, I mean, that's exactly. what it is. The quicker you can reset within reason, take the positives, throw away the things you can't control, the better off you're going to be. Because if you carry that pain, that disappointment to the next week, how are you going to get a result the next week? So I think that's what we're trying to help with, and, and I agree yeah, with that. Yeah, 100%. 100%. I'd like to move move subjects a bit. Uh, something that maybe we've been able to share stories over a beer I'm hoping we can get into what I'm going to be calling probably the untold stories. There are a few that pop to mind, and a few is <laughs> a few oh, is being No, we're not. We're, that's not what it is. But you know, you spoke about PD, and without getting anyone in trouble, uh, is there anything that pops to mind with PD? Uh, you know, an unlucky incident at Eurochamp. <laughs> <laughs> and like I yeah. say, BPC. But I mean, these things happen. We've spoken about them, and yeah, give the so, legal um, give the legal version. The PC version. Um, we were at European Champs in Poland. Um, God, when date was that? I was a year too young to be a junior. Put it that way. So I was actually a youth rider. Um, I was uh, doing pretty well at the, in the UK races, so I actually got picked to ride for the juniors. So um, we were in Poland, we were at the track, and obviously the French Federation didn't like the fact that I was at a race and I was too young. <laughs> so they'd complained to the uh, UCI. So the UCI then proceeded to not let me race the European champs. So I'd flown, I was obviously 15 or whatever I was, super excited, going to my first race where I was, you know, representing the representing Great Britain. And then found out that I wasn't allowed to ride the track. So I was like this watching this race go on. And we were going, we were going back and forth with the UCI, you know, then I then they and then they eventually said that I could be a course opener. Just because the French Federation knew from my World Cup results and that my other results, I was going to be a huge threat to their riders, they put the foot down and said that I couldn't ride. <laughs> anyway, went on, went on. I was allowed to do two runs because I was going to be course opener. So these two runs, I, I followed Steve Pete down. And honestly, the first run down, I followed him. And my back brake pads fell out as I was following down. So he pulled over to the side of the track. I tried to stop. So I've flung into the... And I was really new to Steve at the time. You know, I didn't know him super well. But I knew him, I knew him well. We had a really good relationship. Blah, blah, blah. I've just hit the world champ at 40 miles an hour on my bike. He's pulled over. My brake pads have fallen out. I smashed into the back of him. We've both smashed onto the side of the track in a pile. I'm like, shit, sorry, Steve, sorry, Steve. Neither of us injured because my brake pads have fallen out. Blah, blah, blah. That was the first incident. Then um, I obviously felt super bad, like such an idiot after smashing to Steve. was actually my fault. I did another run, got to the track. And then right at the 11th hour, 
the UCI said, oh, yeah, Brendan can actually race. So <laughs> I got off my... Ben while I've done two runs down this track. Um, go up and I do my run. But because I've only done two runs, I don't actually know where the finish line is. It's quite a long pedal out to the finish line. So, <laughs> so I've got to the bottom of my run and I've been like, cool, finished, sat down. <laughs> and well, the whole British cycling team, I remember Helen Morton at the time was shouting, pedal, you little idiot, pedal, pedal, pedal. And I'm thinking, what the, what the fuck's going on? Like, what do you mean? Like, I've just finished. So I, I didn't know that the finish line was like another 50 metres away. <laughs> so I've got back up off my seat and like pedaled to the finish and got through the finish line. And I ended up getting fourth. I was two seconds off the win. But I was in fourth place. So I literally could have easily won if I didn't sat, sit down. So <laughs> kind of fun, like really funny now. But at the time, I was just like, oh, no, this is the start of me looking like a complete idiot, which I was and am. But um, that was super funny. Um, but to everyone, I had won. But I obviously didn't have the medal. And it was a good, it was a big, I was a big laughing stock. And it was super funny and blah, blah, blah. But. I put I sort of laid laid it down that weekend that I was the European champ but this with no medal. <laughs> and anyway, uh really good vibe, everyone's having fun. Uh Steve comes down, obviously wins the wins the European champs. He beat Fabian at the time. It was that it was such a good vibe. We were drinking a few beers at the bottom, having a wicked time. And then we we're in a little hire car. At the time. I wasn't driving at the time, but Steve and Andy Kiffin were driving at the time. It was me and Mark Beaumont, and we were staying there at the hotel. And um, we we'd all we we're all pretty like you know not we're not drunk, but we've got like three or four beers in us. We're really merry. We're having a wicked time of it. It's just rad, rad vibe. So Steve's like, right, you and Mark have got to ride back, you lazy bastards. Um, and Brendan, you've got you've got a ride you've got a ride because you didn't pedal the last thing, so you've got to learn to pedal, you lazy prick. <laughs> That's brilliant. Yeah, so we're, we're me and Mark are riding back to the uh, back to the hotel. Steve's driving behind us in the hire car, and I'm I'm clipped in at the time, actually, believe it or not. Um, so I'm clipped in, and I'm riding along with like pissing around. He's like Steve driving up the back of us, pretending to run us over, and like we did, you know, we're just playing around. We're idiots. I like hit like a boggy patch in this fire road, so I slow down a lot because I've obviously got no power either. And as we do that, Steve hits hits me in the hire car from behind, like that. I'm tucked completely no. under the car. Like the only thing that you can see is my head and my hands on the bumper because I couldn't get clipped out. The bike, like the, the car was completely on top of my bike. My pedal was jammed up in the radiator. I was completely under. Steve didn't get out of the car. He was literally as white as a sheep. He'd just like frozen. He thought he'd killed me. Oh um, my I was, goodness. I, I was still alive under the car, but I was like, about to get burned from the radiator and stuff, but I couldn't get off. I was still clipped in with the, with the car on top of me. So, like, 20 Polish go- guys had to come over and lift the car off of me, and I'd stamp my bike out. My bike was completely snapped in half, like, bent to pieces, like, blah, blah, blah. 
Steve was just, I've never seen anything like it. He was white as a sheep. Didn't say a word. Obviously he said sorry, but he was just silent. He honestly thought he'd just killed me. <laughs> oh my goodness. That yeah, is so, brilliant. Uh, so uh, I'd obviously got gravel rash the whole side of me. Like my whole body was covered in gravel rash from or up on one side where I'd been like dragged along under the car. Um, and yeah, we went back to the hotel, you know, that night we we could have a little laugh about it, but at the time I was, I was so, uh, young and ignorant and not traveled that we were, we go out, went out to a few bars and, uh, went out to a few bars, we were getting drinks and we were just pissing around. And then we turned, we went, we went to this house that had a, a red light outside the house. And I was like, oh, this is weird. This must be someone's house. We went in there and we were just like, I was in there getting, getting a drink from Steve. And the next thing I know, uh, a girl comes over to me in a bikini and I'm like, wow, this is pretty weird. <laughs> this is pretty rad. And anyway, we were in a strip club in in, in, uh, in Poland and Steve had uh, paid me back by uh, by getting me a private dance with a, uh, with a stripper, which at the age of 15, I was like, what the hell? This is bonus. This is so cool. <laughs> Did you think she liked anyway, you it, before? And I was like, I was like, Jesus, chick in her bikini had come over and she, she like, she's like holding my hand and she seems, I think she's pretty into me. You know? <laughs> <laughs> I've, I've scored here. So I've got a beer in my hand, gravel rash all down one side. And I'm getting danced in front of by a chick in the bikini. It was uh, it was worth uh, it was worth getting run over by the car. Let me tell you at the time. <laughs> oh my goodness, that's so obviously good. further along the line. I realised that it's a strip club, but uh, yeah, at the time I thought I was I was uh, thought I was a right player, and I picked up a hot girl. <laughs> oh, that's brilliant. Yeah, yeah. I love that story, but it's better hearing it again all in one go. There's so many that pop to mind. I remember one, the hardest I've laughed is you telling me about when you guys got given the car in Morzine and you figured it it could fit under that sign. Oh, yeah, jeez. <laughs> tell, tell tell people about that because some people know Morzine and might know where the sign is. So you can just quickly yeah, run, yeah. run me through that one, the, the fast version. Yeah, 100%. Well, we used to go to Morzine... Uh every year we used to spend like three weeks in there in the van just like muck around in the town and uh and um just you know just be lads in in Morsing and just ride our bikes really and um we were um that year we got given a little uh opal Corsa or Vauxhall Corsa had no starter motor in it and uh we just got given it I can't remember who gave it to us but we had this little car and it used to be I just run around the whole time. So we'd, we were staying in Leger at the time. The road down to Leger, down to Morzine, on the, as you get, people will know this, as you go down on the left-hand side, there's a car park and there's a sign that says like Port de Soleil or, or Leger Morzine on, on the left-hand side. And I was driving down to pick up my friend Rich Thomas from Morzine to take him back to Leger. And as I was driving down, I think it was me and Ben Baker, good friend at the time, well, good friend now. We, I said, Ben, you think the car will fit under that sign? So <laughs> we creeped over to the sign and the car, and the sign is like two poles down with a sign above, you know. So it's like a football, it's like a football um, goal sort of thing. 
and the car fitted under the sign by about one inch, you know. So <laughs> we'd, cre- we'd crept under this, and I was like, dude, let's go pick Rich up. And on the way back up, we'll pretend to lose control and drive under the sign at like 50 miles an hour. <laughs> it would scare the hell out of him. <laughs> so, you know, so stupidly. We head down there, pick up Rich. <laughs> On the way back up, 50 miles an hour is an exaggeration. I'm probably doing 30 miles an hour. So I pretend to lose control of the car and swerve over the other side of the, of the road and smash underneath this sign at like 30, 40 miles an hour, which obviously the car can go under by an inch. <laughs> so no flung under, we're flung under this sign at like 30, 40 miles an hour. And Rich, obviously, uh, we put Rich in the passenger seat. He's absolutely shit himself. <laughs> and, uh, yeah, but I, I didn't think at the time, like, we could be, like, bumping in and might hit the sign. But I was, like, 17, didn't care. And we just we smashed it under there. And still, to this day, I look at that sign and think, how the hell did we get under there? But that was such a funny, that was such funny times. That is brilliant. Some of the mischief. Yeah, but I mean, that that's car, fun mischief, that, isn't it? Yeah, that car did some naughty mischief. Like, we driving down the slopes of La Plain, of Plenty and all sorts of stuff. But, yeah. Yeah, yeah. Oh. I distinctly remember a drive back from... Uh, a drive back from, Le, from Morsey into Leger, where we made Rachel Afton drive, and she might have... Uh, Hit some uh, hit some wheelie bins on the way back as well, but yeah, <laughs> that's another time. That's story for another time. We'll uh, yeah. I might have to make uh, special episodes for these untold stories. Oh, I do. We've got tons. <laughs> that's so good. Well, let's uh, let's shift gears. Let's get maybe a bit more to the present, or maybe even last year. You mentioned uh, coming back. You've mentioned your passion for racing. Getting six in Leger. Yes, it's close to a podium, but I think. I think you're just happy to be back in the mix. Did something click? Do you can you can you try take us back? Maybe morning of of race. Did something click? Did you remember something from your past racing days? What what happened there? Unfortunately, I can't look back and think. Oh yeah, I did that different. Or I did that different. I did that different. What I can say is that we we now have a super competitive bike. Like our bike is awesome it's amazing the new gambler is absolutely awesome um you can tell that like dean dean lucas he's you know top 10 overall consistently up there the bike is amazing so so now i was at the stage where if i was to have a good but good bike nothing was holding me back like if i was to have a good run like i knew the bike could deal with it and the new bike was a podium bike the new bike was a winning bike it is a winning bike um so I, I don't know. I just I just had always had a good feeling with Leger Morzim. Like we spent a lot of time there. Had a good feeling. Practice was going super well. Um, the track was quite short. It suited me pretty well. I knew it was going to be super tight times, but um, I was having a good time of it. I was uh, I was I, I was actually came in slow. I came pra- I practice. I, I built my speed slow. Um, I had a super good time practice run. Um, and I was feeling good and then my qualifying wasn't so good actually I knew I think I got a, a 303 in my in my uh, in my time practice and I did a 305 
in my qualifying. And what I really did is I luckily I'd GoPro'd both of those runs so I could watch them back extensively. And I watched my 303 run compared to my 305 run. And if you're watching a GoPro, to the untrained eye, or even to my eye, that I was actually racing, I was actually I actually did those two runs, I could barely tell the difference of of those runs, you know. And two seconds is a huge amount of time in racing. But watching those two runs back, I couldn't at the time I had to watch it a lot to really figure out where I lost those two seconds. You know what I mean? Like two seconds over three minutes is like tiny, tiny marginal little gains. And what what I really looked into and still look back now and I look at Amory's run and Amory, I mean, I got sick, but Amory put three and a half seconds into me for the win. And I was honestly thinking, shit, dude, how the hell did you find three and a half seconds? But like my run felt pretty good. But what, what, what I'm saying is what, what I, what I learned from it is that because like my confidence was there, my confidence was up. I was using, all of every turn so how can i put this like when you're when you're a little bit nervous about something or when you're not quite as confident you hit a turn not at the beginning of the turn because you're worried you're going to blow out of the turn you know what i mean andrew yeah definitely I so like I... so like i was i was if, you, if you're not as confident you come in without knowing it, you sort of t-bone the turn a little bit and you don't carry quite as much speed out whereas if you're on the top of your game and you're confident, you're using the right at the beginning of the turn, you're making the radius of the turn as, as big as you possibly can to carry as much speed as you can. So I just I just saw that in my two oh in my two oh my three oh three run. I just said, look, you just gotta carry your speed, use as much of the turns as you possibly can, use the whole berm and just keep carrying your speed. And that's that's what I did in my run. I just carried super good speed. I used all of the turns, I was confident. I didn't lose any speed in corners. And I came down and I surprised myself with a 3.01. And I was like, shit, that's going to that's gonna be a tough time to beat. But obviously, uh, obviously, Amory did a 58 or 59 or whatever he did. But yeah, that's what I learned. I just, you know, learned that the confidence comes gradually. And, that I, and how I was going to improve that time was by coming into every turn really early and that's hard to do because you think you're gonna blow blow a turn out or, or your front wheel will go the wrong side of a turn you know so yeah that's 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 what i did and that's what i focused on for my run but i mean that in theory is actually so simple you've gone back to basics and when you're confident and you're riding well it's subconscious you're sitting up wide for all these turns you're carrying pace you're not touching your brakes in the turn and yeah. it seems like it just took you a little bit of like analyzing and realizing, oh, that's the thing that I'm not doing as much of it as I can. Obviously, at your level, two seconds. But, you know, for the listeners at home, that's just back to basics. Even you at the top level of the sport are going, oh, hang on. I need to remember to set up wide for these turns. I've got to carry good pace. And if you just get a tenth of a second here, two tenths there, it all adds up to two, you know, two, three seconds over even a minute. So I think that's that's great. Uh, great insight and a good lesson that sometimes just going back to basics and corners that's something i wanted to speak about and i think you've just answered the question advice to listeners about you're just one of the best corners in the world you know yeah well i you know, but going back to it i'd say like 
you can find yourself a berm in your bike park or or anywhere you know and you can you can use it like basically no one cares how fast you're coming into a berm it's how fast you exit a berm which makes a huge difference so i think you can just you can practice that yourself but uh but yeah i don't i don't i've i don't know why i've uh got a bit of a i'd say josh bryce is the best corner in the world um, well, that's yeah. Still f- to this, f- fair still en- to this day. Fair enough. I've got to say it's you, one of them, because I'm speaking to you. But yeah, Josh yeah, has, yeah. An, has a just an uncanny way of getting around turns. Yeah, but no, I I say that's a really easy way to find some speed really easily is uh, is think about your exit speed and don't break in the middle of the turn, which is you know really back to basic. No, I mean that's great insight, and I think the guys at home can work on that. Is finding a corner and doing it over and over, and you'll get a feeling for what's fast and where your where your breaking points are. And then for I sure. mean, you go on. So that's a, it's a high for the World Cup season, and I can't have you on without digging into to rampage. And I know everyone at home, your fourth place run there. I think it, it's. I feel like it's a win for you. I mean, that's a huge win. Yes, it's not first place, but going up against guys that get paid to do that for a living every day and and you come out of there fourth. But I want to dig into the mental side because we had a conversation and I talked to you about the Canyon Gap, which is just crazy in itself. And then you decide to flip it. But you said to me, you'd kind of made peace that you could crash. You'd made peace that you'd probably then break a collarbone or get hurt. And you, and you, you thought about that and you said, I'm okay with that. And then you made your decision to do it. Can you talk to me more about that mental side of flipping the canyon? Yeah, absolutely. Um, yeah, obviously Rampage has become a huge, huge uh, part in my in my calendar. You know, like it's, it's something that I hugely, hugely enjoy doing. I mean, I hate the, the race day. But the build up, like going out of Deeks and Ollie's, we have such an amazing time and it's, and it's hard work and it's long days and it's tough and it's stressful. But I think that makes the end of it even, even, even better. You know, like, like we said earlier on in this, in this, in this podcast, that something that you work for, the reward is always way better. The harder you work, it means the reward is better. So this is 10 days of early mornings, late evenings, digging in the dust, sweat, tears. Well, actually only tears at the end, but, uh, yeah, but I just, I, I just, I'd started to do backflips more and more, and I was more confident. And this line I had, which obviously the previous year um, I thought was good, and then I had a tenth place, which I was super pissed off about. But you know, judged events are judged events. Um, so I knew we'd come back, and I knew we could we could put some huge heat on this uh, on this line. And I had this big canyon, and the year before. I said to Ollie, I was like, dude, let's just go and fucking flip that thing, dude. Let's, let's do it. And it was just a bit of like a hearsay like thing to say. And obviously that was in my head the whole year. I was like, right, I'm going to flip that. We got back there the previous year, the next year, and I looked at this jump and I was like, oh, dear. <laughs> what have I got myself into? The thing was so long. I was so deeply unqualified for that. But I got it in my head, and I'd, I'd made pizza. Like you said, I'd like I was gonna flip that regardless. So I'd spent a lot of time around it. Um, 
I've got a lot of advice from other riders on flipping stuff like that because it's really long um, and quite a short lip. And I've never flipped anything like that in my life. I'd only flipped like big, perfect jumps. Um, so I've got some good advice from like Brett Reader, Bienve, a few other good riders, uh, Andrew. And they just said, look, you've got to just pull as hard as you can off the lip uh, to get the flip done early and then open up because you just don't want to under-rotate. But anyway, back to it. Like, we built the perfect jump. Um, and coming up, obviously, two or three days up to it, the, it dwelled on me that I actually have to flip that in a few days' time. Like, I'd, I'd been so focused on everything else up to then. And then it suddenly uh, dawned on me. But like you said, I'd gone through most scenarios in my head um, and I was pretty sure that I was going to under-rotate, nose-bonk the landing and this crash onto my onto my shoulder and probably break my collarbone or break my arm or break my wrist or something like that. But I, I, I never envisaged me crashing into the middle, which was like a 50-foot deep canyon. I never envisaged over-rotating. I, was, I, was, I scienceded everything out, really, and I thought, you know what? If I'm going to have a huge crash and I'm going to hurt myself, this is a good spot to be, and, it's gonna, and I'm going to put all my efforts in. I'm going to have done all the calculations I can, and it's, it's for the greater good of, of my career and the sport, and I want to do it. Like, I'm not forced by anyone to do it. And also, like, at the time, like, you put your two diggers Ben and Ollie through 10 days of early mornings, late nights, digging, shit food, all this stuff. And I thought, I've got to do it for the boys. Like, I've said I'm going to do it. I'm doing this for the boys. Um, so, yeah, like, honestly and, and truly, weirdly, as soon as I took off my run, that, that nothing was stopping me pulling back as hard as I can off that lip, which is so weird to think right now when I'm sat on my couch, like, after not riding my bike for four, four weeks, but I was, I had a hundred percent confidence in myself. I knew exactly what I was going to do. I was just pulling, pull, hit, see that lip and just pull back as hard as I can. And once I see the landing open up and you know what, it just worked out so good, but, but weirdly enough, I wasn't nervous. I just, cause I'd been through, through every scenario and I, I knew what the outcome was going to be regardless of, of of what happened but uh yeah that's some looking back and talking about it sounds pretty dumb but uh yeah that's that's where we were at well I, I was so i was thinking courageous was so and simple. yeah that as well but i was i knew that i'd never done anything like that and it would be the hardest thing i'd ever ha- have to do and i was just thinking look just get it <clears throat> just get it done and hopefully you won't have to flip over anything like that ever again in your life. So, yeah, let's just get it done now. <laughs> well, I think that's a humble way of looking at it. I am hearing a lot of actual visual and preparation, and then you've kind of brainstormed. And I think that's a cool lesson. Like, if you can accept some of the probable worst cases, like, look, there's a way worse case. You could have fallen in the canyon. But yeah, yeah, probable yeah. worst case that you'd made peace with and you were happy with it. And then I heard the word commitment. I mean... If you're not committed, you've got way less chance of landing something. So if you can get yourself to be committed, I think you've got way more chance of achieving anything. So, yeah, that was, I think, uh, more power to you. That was an incredible feat. And and I think you give everyone kind of 
I don't know, everyone was rooting for you. The, the racer, you're kind of the underdog, the racer against yeah, the free ride, sure. even though everyone's in it together and they're all great guys. I think it's fun to have someone almost the underdog to root for. So I think yeah. I appreciate you looking back and, and giving us kind of the mental side. And have you got any tips for on the downhill side? I mean, you've talked about, you know, visualization, preparing. What, what does it look like, say, 30 seconds before you step in the gate? Can you get us back to that place or is it going to be a bit tough because you haven't raced for a while? Well, geez, I think you just – you're just going through everything that you've, you know, you've, you're just going through everything you've been through in that weekend. You know, you've just, you've had probably 10, 12 runs of the track. You you know, every rock, you know, every route, you know, every scenario. Um, 30 seconds before you just really wishing that you weren't there, aren't you? You're hating it. <laughs> well, that's what you're, wishing, you, you're doing. I guess. You're wishing, you're wishing that you had done better at school and you're in an office job. <laughs> um, you, you know, it's it's not a nice feeling. It's horrible. It's, it feel like the whole world is on your shoulders. You're on live TV. You you got all these sponsors um, on your back, which they're not on your back, but you know you, you feel obliged to, to perform. But um, you just have to put all that behind you and just get get the track in your head. But um, yeah, it's it's tough uh, to look back and think about that when I'm sat on the couch now. In, but, um, in lockdown. Yeah, yeah exactly. Well, I, you've, you've probably got a lot of time. I think we'll start wrapping up. You've got some awesome listener questions I want to get to, some good ones. But, you know, you've maybe had the time to think, what is, let's take a step forward. What does the future look like? You've spoken a bit about your focus, your dog's life, your movies, your racing, the passion. Give us some thoughts on what the future may look uh, for Brendan. Um, I don't, I don't like to look too far ahead. Um, certainly in the next, uh, next year or two is going to be definitely, well, I was thinking of racing this world cup season, then like, then, then seeing where my priorities lie and maybe, maybe not racing so much after that, but this season hasn't gone ahead. So it's definitely be, be pushing hard into next season for racing. Um, and I'm just loving doing these dogs' life episodes, uh, filming. Just the sports changing, you know. Like YouTube's coming up. We've got like loads of other different opportunities here, there, and everywhere. So uh, I'm just, I'm just, uh, just really going back to basics and enjoying riding my bike and just taking, taking what comes really, and just uh, putting some focus into, uh, into, into filming. But uh, definitely, I've been speaking to Clay and Seager more. Uh, over the last couple of weeks uh, there's definitely talk of maybe uh, another film coming up so yeah we'll see well we know the fans will love that so we hope something comes of that uh, I appreciate all your time it's been so fun I want to run through a few listener questions threw it out on Instagram they don't even know what it's for so let's have a quick run through here please explain S4P what does it mean and where does it come from oh <laughs> S4P is stands for sorry for partying and we did that years and years and years ago um we uh just wanted to do a clothing brand and uh that's what we did and then obviously cam zinc after that did all the sorry for partying stuff which made it slightly more uncool for us to to carry on with it but it's still like a bit of a thing we say s for p and uh you know it might might still come we, we've got it's a cool uh 
around here we've got some cool t-shirts and cool designs that we did we haven't really pushed it but yeah, obviously it's the S&P bike park um, dirt jumps that Ollie, Ollie got made uh, which is like a, a public dirt jump park but yeah S&P stands for sorry for partying but uh, yeah it's quite embarrassing back in the day when you, people would be like what does that mean and I was like in my late 20s it's like oh it stands for sorry for partying <laughs> but um I don't know, something cool we might we might bring back. That's funny. Yes, on. I heard Andrew stays at your house in England for long periods of time. How does your family put up with him and any funny stories? Okay, we'll skip the part about your family and maybe just give us a quick funny story. I'm happy to get embarrassed here. That's from Frank CKX on Instagram. Okay, we've got two funny stories that come directly to mind. Two um First of all, we're, we'll bring you back to the motocross track. Yep. Uh, we're at mo- we're at motocross track. It's a week before the Fort William World Cup, so we're trying to be very sensible. We're training hard. There's no alcohol involved. We are we're we're, we're training, and we motocross is a, is a big part of training. So we're at a track, and obviously you're borrowing my bike, and there's a triple in the track. It's quite a sketchy one. And we've, but I've said at the beginning of the day, like, let's not do the triple because it's a bit dangerous. It's a bit sketchy. It was a week before the World Cup. And this is coming from me, the, the, the not so sensible guy. You're out there doing laps. I, I'm in the pits. I look over to, to see you in the air, third gear wide open, desperately trying to get this 450 back in a straight line. <laughs> Huge swap on on the landing over the bar. Uh, no, it's uh, high side head slap. I thought, oh no, this is so bad. You manage to get up, don't you? And then you ride yourself back to the pits. The bike's okay. You seem at first glance okay. I'm like, okay, that's not too bad. We're in one piece. This is good. I go out for a moto, come back like 10, 15, 20 minutes late, whatever. I get approached by a friend of mine and they're like, dude, Andrew's not okay. He's like, asked us where we are, what's going on about 20 times. Like, he's not okay. So I go over to you and I figure out that you are severely concussed. I was like, oh, shit. But that, but your concussion was like getting progressively worse every moto I did. I come after another moto and you didn't know where you were. You didn't know what the date was. You didn't know what was happening next weekend. All this stuff, I was like, okay, this is getting quite bad. We, you were just repeating yourself a million times, and it was so funny for us, like you doing it. But then I kept thinking, shit, this is head injuries. It's not funny. Anyway, so we're heading back in the car afterwards, and you kept like looking at your phone, and you'd previously just got a UK SIM card for your phone, so you had data on your phone, and you'd pick up your phone in the car. You'd put your phone away. Two minutes later, you'd pick it up you'd see that you'd got data on your phone and you'd be like, shit, 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 I've got to turn my data off, I've got to turn my data off, like, that is going to cost me shit. And I was like, no, no, Andrew, don't worry, you've got, you've got an English SIM card. He's like, oh, okay, yeah, yeah, pimp, 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 I'm a pimp. <laughs> and then you'd put your phone back, three minutes later, you'd like pick up your phone, shit, I've got data on, shit, I've got to turn it off, oh, this is going to cost me. And I was like, no, 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 don't, do, 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 you've got an English SIM, it's fine. This would go on about 10 times on the way back. And it was really not good. Oh, and then when so we got good. home, I went on a little spin, like a training ride at home. You were left you at home. And I had a call from your mum and dad, I think. And it was like, oh, is Andrew okay? He's been on the Skype call to him. And uh, 
he seems like uh, he's okay, but he seems a bit weird. And I think you almost tricked your mum and dad into you being fine. And you were pretty badly concussed. I do remember, um, ironically, I do remember that now. Not at the time, yeah. obviously. And so then, good. So that was a good story. Oh, you've got another more, one. have you? I think you just... Yeah, another one. Yeah. Got plenty. Another <laughs> one, we were going out for uh, for a curry, going out for dinner. We were another friend of mine, Jono Jones. Jono, we're just walking through the town tries to jump on this brick wall like a two foot box jump and obviously you being the most competitive guy one of the most competitive guys i know Jono manages to do it so you're like ah oh, here move out of the way i'll do this so you try jumping onto this wall clip your toes on the top and shin yourself worse than i've ever seen oh i remember that and didn't that put you in hospital for two days yeah so i remember being at the curry house and my jeans were like wet and I was like that's weird and then I went to the bathroom and I was just bleeding from my shin the short of the long is we went road bike intervals and I think we went out to Morsi and we're just riding in the in the rain oh, and the mud yeah we did so there was yeah. a lot of rain and then on the flight back from Morsi this was also before a world cup probably I think for William funny I enough forgot as about well. that. and my leg just started swelling and got really hot on the plane ride and I was like this isn't good and luckily I, uh, I think I called my dad and he's like, just, it's probably infected, go straight away and get some antibiotics. And then I got given antibiotics and they said within two days it would work. And it was just, it literally looked like the side of my, size of my quad and I barely have calves to start with. So like my lower leg was huge and it didn't go down. Yeah, I had to go get, I think your dad drove me to hospital, I got checked into hospital, got intravenous antibiotics for like two or three days before the World, World Cup. So it was oh hugely infected. So yeah, thanks for the memory there. Uh, we've got plenty more stories from yeah. another day. No, we do. We'll have to do our, uh, our own episode just on stupid stuff that went down at the compound. All right, let's, sure. let's run through a bit of this. I've I've been uh, you've been grateful with your time. Scariest moment on the bike. We've gone through that. It seems like the canyon flip. Who are your best diggers? From a guy called at D Canada. Yeah, okay. So, <laughs> oh, so obviously Ollie then. <laughs> Ollie and John are, say. Okay. <laughs> at D Canada on Instagram. Just uh, he says it's Ollie and Ollie and John. Uh, how many tiles did you break while riding off the roof from MTV Joe? <laughs> I think I broke about eight, but they're all fixed now. Don't worry, I'm a, I'm a pro roofer now. So this is a good one. Are you going to the next rampage? Um, uh, not sure yet. To be decided. Okay. Racing or free ride at Ethan Par 25? Uh, racing. Okay. So still racing for now. If you could make your dream World Cup team, who would be in it? Uh, what do you mean? Like, this is a fun team. No, well, you decide if it's, it's just like you have your own World Cup team, you race and who your teammates. I'd have... Uh, just all the boys they'd be like a 10 10 uh, 10 uh, 10 strong crew we probably wouldn't do very good but yeah it'd be uh, all, all the boys <laughs> okay awesome and then uh, how many death grips does he break each year jingles I don't know if he's going to be too kind about this answer uh, what do you mean break I don't understand he clearly doesn't know how to put them on 
No, people, people that ever, if if anyone's ever broken a death grip, it's because you haven't put it on right. You need to bang it on. It's not possible to break if you bang that death grip on fully. So yeah, that that's good to get out there because it's not possible to break a death grip. Yeah. So you heard it from the horse's mouth. He has not broken one. So loosen the Allen key bolt and bang it on to the handlebar. Bang it on so it's fully on your handlebar. Then it's a hundred percent not not possible to break a death grip. Well, there, there you, you go. go. Some tech tips. So no one, no, no more people Instagram me saying that they've snapped their death grip because it's not installed correctly. Yeah, and you're not getting a free one. So stop no. it. All right. Who wears the pants in your current relationship? Well, Brendan is now a married man, an honest married man. That's from at Young Buffano on Instagram. Yeah. Uh, let's just be PC here and say 50-50. 50-50. Well, no wonder it's a loving relationship. And then yeah. let's end it off with the gnarliest trail you've ridden from at Luke IV on Instagram. Trail I've ever ridden. I'd probably say I'd say there's some stuff like the back end of Madeira that's pretty pretty gnarly on trail bikes. Really, there's some uh, just not gnarly as in crazy, but it's like so slippery and and like it's an old uh, a walking path, and that was probably the gnarliest thing I've ridden down on a trail bike. So yeah, pretty that. Well, Bryn, that was great for me. I hope you enjoyed it a little bit. I think you've been really grateful with your time, even though you don't have much else to do except vlog yourself around your garden. So thanks <laughs> thanks for coming on. And, uh, yeah, I look forward to seeing what, what the future does hold for racing as well as your, uh, your career. Awesome, dude. Thanks for the chat. Wish you all the best with the podcast. Hopefully I can get on it again soon. Yeah, well, thanks. And, and, yeah, and tell us what the what podcast is called, Moving the Needle. It's going to be called Moving the Needle. I uh, like that. That's a cool name. Well, that's good to hear. And, uh, yeah, I've got lots of ideas, and for sure we'll have you on again, especially when the racing starts up again. So thanks again for your time. I appreciate it. All good, dude. Cheers. Take care. And there you have it. That was episode one of Moving the Needle. Big thanks for Brent for coming on. Great to hear where his head is at. Such a humble guy for what he has achieved. This podcast wouldn't be possible without Davey at the Hook It podcast. He inspired me and helped me out. So go check him out and subscribe. That logo was designed by my buddy Ollie Wilkins. Be sure to check what he's up to on YouTube and Instagram. One of the most stylish writers out there. It would be so awesome if you could subscribe, share and review this podcast on Apple, Spotify and for wherever else you get those podcasts. Send me a message if you liked it and what you want to hear more of. Until the next episode, stay well, listeners.